Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, the shark, baby. Has such teeth, dear. And it shows them pearly white. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark. And Matt Macklin, hope everybody's well. I've spent the last couple of weeks uh, in Poland. I've been at the Youth World Championships in Kielce, which is about 100, 150 kilometres south of Warsaw, just in case you were wondering. Um, it was great. It was great. Uh, COVID conditions still, of course, but but I did an amazing job getting through the tournament. Not everybody came. There were some big nations missing. Uh, USA weren't there. Not that many from the Americas were there, actually. Um, but Cuba were there, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Ukraine, Russia, uh, some some big, big powerhouses. So it's just really, it's always great to see a new generation of fighters come through and 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 get to get to know them a little bit before they kind of hit the uh, before they kind of hit the mainstream. Um, Macklin, all well with you? All good, all good. I'm uh, interested to hear from you in the coming weeks. Who were the standout guys? You did give me. The heads up on one or two, so it'll be interesting to follow their progress. And uh, looking forward to this podcast with uh, Jerry. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. We were sent an email, or Matt was uh, a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, maybe actually, from Fred Sternberg, um, offering uh, the gentleman who's on today as, as as a guest. And I kind of, I'm not not just saying this. I kind of, I kind of half fell off my chair. I was so I was so eager to get this to get this arranged because. It's not often that you get the opportunity to speak to somebody who has been around the sport um, at the highest level, who has been right at the top end of, of the sports journalism profession for for as long as he has, because he's been working at the same publication, uh, which is incredible in itself, the New York Star Ledger, for, for 70 years. He's, he's covered all sorts of things, 50 plus Super Bowls, 50 plus Kentucky uh, Derbies, um, and he has been there for some of the biggest, most of the biggest fights in boxing history uh, post-war, you would probably say, um, from, the, from the 60s onwards. Uh, and there's nothing better than, than, 
first-hand accounts than speaking to someone who's who's able to say I was there or if you say to them well how, how do you know that he thought that or he did, did he really say that and, and they just say yeah because he said it to me it's just great you know it's just there's nothing nothing better than that um, and he's got a book coming out there. it's a re-release actually it's called Once There Were Giants so I'll just put it up for the for the camera there I've got my copy because I bought it when it originally came out in in 2017 the golden age of heavyweight boxing it's been re-released in paperback and it's out uh, about pretty much now actually um, I think next week or, or the week after you can pre-order at Amazon at the minute and you can pre-order it at Barnes and Noble as well but I strongly recommend you to get your hands on it once there were giants it's called the golden age of heavyweight boxing and, and it talks about the period from 1962 so we go from Liston Patterson uh, to 1997 and it finishes with with the bite fight between Mike Tyson um, and Evander Holyfield and and the gentleman in question is uh He's what the young people these days would call an OG of, uh, of boxing writing. It's, uh, it's Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry, thank, thanks very much for doing this. Um, well, how are you? The, thanks for the introduction. I usually say old fart, but it's close. <laughs> well, we had a really good think about this. I reread the book last week and I was thinking what's the best way because we could do we could do about ten hours on this with you, but uh, and I'd be totally happy to do that, completely happy to do it. But but you've got things to do, I, I would imagine. Um, during, so it's that period, thirty five years from sixty two to ninety seven, and one period that I always find really interesting is is the very is the very beginning of that because it takes in the two fights between Liston and Patterson, um, who I think in themselves are two contrasting, very interesting ca- characters, particularly particularly Liston, and I'm not sure if he really gets his due in, in the heavyweight pantheon. Um, and then, of course, the the fights he had with Clay firstly and then Ali as he became for the second one. There's just so much intrigue and mystery around around them, but basically around kind of everything he he did because he wasn't the most forthcoming. I mean, I reckon I've tackled some quite difficult people for interviews but I don't think I don't think they're on the same level as uh, as him so first question really is what because you were there as I say this is this is the great thing about this you were there and you knew him what what was he like you're talking about listening now right listen yeah yeah I like listening very much I know he was a thug at one point in his life and there was a point when they wouldn't let him be any, but anything else, which is part of the story. But, you know, there's a great problem over here. I hope you don't have it over there. Some people mistake Ill- illiteracy for stupidity. Listen was illiterate, but he was far from stupid. And I want to give you a quote that he told me one day. He knocks out Patterson, bang, bang. He's the champion. They're going to have the rematch in Miami Beach, which they didn't because they couldn't sell tickets. But the day that Floyd Patterson opened his training camp, he's training at Hialeah Racetrack. Now, if you want to get to Hialeah, you're really going to want to get to Hialeah. you got to go through all these roads, these connectors, everything else. They take it from downtown Miami, probably take it two hours, uh, not counting traffic. And 2,000 people show up on the grounds to see Floyd Patterson train who fought about that first fight two minutes and one second. I can't believe it. So now I go to Listen's Hotel. It's a kosher hotel in Miami Beach. They they took it because nobody really else wanted them there. And 
I'm sure, it was, I don't remember what it was called, but I'm sure the bill was never paid or they moved the fight to Vegas. But my point is this, I had had a little to do with Sonny uh, when he, just before they won the title. Uh, he had chased me. He didn't have to chase me. When he said go, I was more, I had a five yard head start. I wasn't going to sit there. I walked in and I saw Geraldine List and his wife, the training fan. This is the first fight. And uh, I walked over, I introduced myself and I said, I'd like to talk to you for a minute. All of a sudden, my right shoulder went down to the floor, listening, he's leaning on it. And he says, you, this is her side. You're over there. Sir, yes, sir. And I got, I got to do anything and argue with him until he wins the title. At least let me get some money when he hits me. All right. So obviously we know he's won. <laughs> well, now he's training for this rematch, which never, which didn't happen there. And I and it's incredible. 2,000 people to welcome Floyd Patterson. Six people are in this makeshift gym by the swimming pool to watch Sonny train. And it's the night train routine, all this stuff that we all know about. And the loudspeaker comes on. Uh, attention in the hotel. Ramon and Ramona will be giving cha-cha lessons in another 30 minutes. And this is the world champion. Nobody's paying any attention to it. So I got to talk to him, no matter how much you may remember from, from the first time. So I go and I, I hang around outside and I look toward the beach. And there is Geraldine Liston in a beach here looking at the ocean. Well, I say, if I got a way to send it, it's got to be through Geraldine. So I walk over and I say, uh, Ms. Liston, I, I, I got to reintroduce. She said, no, you don't. I remember Charles was very rude to you in Aurora, Illinois. And I'm thinking, Charles, I know who has the pants in this family, right? So I'm sticking with her. She says, you will get your interview. Sit down. He will be here soon. All of a sudden, the sun disappears because he's standing between me and it. And she says, Charles, before you say anything, sit down. This is Mr. Eisenberg. You were very rude to him in, in uh, Illinois. Now, you give him the interview he needs. It's his livelihood. Now, listen, it's mortified, right? Because she has now established who owns the territorial imperative. And he's got to find a way to save his face. I used to smoke a pipe in those days. He says to me, you can stay, but the pipe got to go. So I throw it in the ocean. I said, far enough <laughs> for you? He said, well, talk. And I then I give him this thing about Everybody loves Floyd. They're out there. The guy didn't even fight. It was terrible. And how do you account 2,000 people? There's six people here. I could have shaken hands with everybody watching training. He looks at me and it's pauses. And if we got any aspiring reporters or even veteran reporters out there, this is a good piece of advice. Don't open your mouth. Let them think. Don't think he's dumb because he's taking a long time. Sonny always took a long time to answer. He wanted to say, make sure he came out with what Sonny wanted to come out with. And he looks at me finally and he says, and this is word for you don't forget these quotes. If this be the olden days and the tribe follow the, the chief in the battle, I'd be scared. Maybe it'll be shorter this time. Great quote. And it taught me another thing. This guy's got a mind. We used to argue all the time how old he was. I really think he might have been older than Foreman when he went. And I used to tell him, you know, 
He said, but I don't know how old. I mean, I said, Sonny, let me tell you something. Somewhere in, 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 in Arkansas, there's a tree. And one day, somebody carved a birthday, your birthday on that tree. And I'm going to go back. And if they haven't chopped it down, I'll know how old you were. And he told that story for years. He told the same story. He was interesting. He was the last. Now, the mob owned fighters in the sense that a mobster might have a fighter. But the cabal, the cabal which was um, Blinky Palermo and above him, uh, um, Carbo, Frankie Carbo, that went out the window except for the lightweight division because Sonny Liston lost the title to Ali and Sonny was the last totally top mob owned fighter. And it opened the door now where people could fight other people. And it, it changed boxing in many, many ways. And one more thing I'd like to say about him. His life was a mystery. His death was even a bigger mystery. Nobody knows how we died. I spoke to the policeman who found the body. Uh, I spoke to Gerald. But this is what I know, and then I will speculate for you. I know that the body was dead for about eight or 10 days. I know that Geraldine had taken the kid and gone to St. Louis to visit her mother. And therefore, it's possible if somebody was going to bump him off, that was the ideal time. He was alone in the house for about a week. And I, I do not think it's a drug overdose. I know he was terrified of needles when he wanted to give him shots for a cold or whatever. And that's just subjective, but I, I, I just have strong suspicions about it. They didn't find when he, the needle was in his arm, okay, when he, when he found him. There was no tourniquet, no strap, no nothing to tie up the, the, the biceps so the, the vein stuck up and you could shoot. And they found a small stash of cocaine in the kitchen. That's not what I'd be looking for. So either one of two things happened, three things happened. One, somebody didn't want him there and gave him a hot shot. Okay. And then they weren't going to leave the, what, they, what they tied him up with to get it in. The second thing, uh, second thing was um, it, there were people who he had difficulties with, he had fights with, and one of them I'm not going to name right now, but that guy is, was the leading suspect for a long time. He was mob connected, he was Vegas connected. That's another guy. The third possibility is Sonny was in the west side, it's a heavy black area in, um, in uh, Vegas, um, to pick up some drugs that day. Uh, well, the day, the last day that anybody saw him. And I don't know whether he was going to resell them or whether he was going to use them. Or I have no, and there's no way to speculate. But that same house was knocked over by the cops after Sonny left. And it's very possible the guy was a really ruthless guy, decided Sonny was the stool pigeon who tipped off the cops. And that's the third possibility. And if you ask me which one I believe, I sure as hell don't have a clue. But I know one thing about the mystery of Sonny Lister. I went to see his grave here. Ironically, when I go, I'm going to be buried in the same cemetery. So 
that not that wasn't the reason. It's because it's on the airplane glide path, and I figure my kids can wave out the window. They don't have to be bothered. They can get back another plane and go home when I go. Anyway, as far as Sonny goes, he I go to the grave, and I go with this cemetery superintendent. I can't find it, so I bring her out to find it. It it says the plate says Sonny Charles Sonny Liston. Under that it says there were two words a man. That's what it says. I look at the grave and there's a basket of artificial flowers and there are four pennies in a rectangle on the grave. Not part of the plate, but I mean put there. Sonny has no living relatives in Las Vegas. None. She went back to St. Louis. I mean, so who would put the, what mystery person would do this? Well, the woman said to me, well, we sell those um, those flowers in um, and you, you know, in our, our gift shop or whatever. So somebody bought them here, but I couldn't tell you who. I have no idea who would do that. Then as far as the pennies go, it was an old New Orleans custom in the voodoo days to put four pennies as payment for the ferryman at the River Sticks. So when the, when the deceased was on his way, the ferryman would take him to heaven and not to hell, right? Later on, GIs did it. Um, a dime if you knew the deceased, a quarter if you were there when he was killed. But nobody knows who put them there. And that to me, that, that his life began in mystery. We don't know his birthday. His connections were all mysterious. Um, his maneuver, his friends, was, he had to look hard to find his friends. He had a lot of good friends. I mean, they had some bad ones, but I mean, a couple of good, Johnny Tucker, who won the ran the gym out here, he knew from St. Louis. He had a small circle of friends. But who put the pennies there? And it still bothers me, I must tell you. However, I remember him most, not so much for what happened with with Patterson. And that was that was like that was like setting up exercises in the morning. You know, before you do your before you go anywhere. So I gotta beat him, I'll beat him twice. Two minutes and one second, two minutes and 15 seconds or whatever, it was over. But I followed, I knew Ali, you know, I, I, my friendship, I, 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 a lot of the fighters that you will know in the book were close friends of mine. Foreman, Larry Holmes, Tyson was a, was a, a, a friend, we got along, which was, a, we never had an argument. Uh, Sonny, and Ali, I, Ali was my friend for 50 years. He was, one day I said to my wife, you know, this son of a bitch is one of my five best friends. And she said, yeah, who are the other four? And I couldn't answer. So that, it was maybe not have been an achievement to get Ali. But anyway, um, Ali stalked him. But I met Ali at the 1960 Olympics in Rome. He won the cruiserweight uh, tie, the, the light heavyweight title at the Olympics. Being light, even today, you can't make a quarter with that title. It's very difficult, as you know, and, you're, and I'm sure your listeners well know that. And so I didn't even go to the fight. They mean to me. I, I do a lot of fights at the Olympics, but I went and did other things. Right, I'm in the Olympic Village, and he's sitting on the steps, and he's got the medal around his neck, and he's holding it up. All these athletes are passing by. And he said, look at this, look at this. 
I'll be the world champion one day, and I'm the prettiest guy. And most of the people who walked past him couldn't understand one word of what he was saying. Guy from Bulgaria, oh yeah, that's what he said, right? Anyway, I noticed one thing though. All the female athletes walked five feet, stopped and turned to take a second look. And I said, this is a guy worth watching. And then we sort of, you know, uh, he kept writing me, he kept calling me and, and saying, you got to come see me fight. You got to come see. Well, that was because of Dundee. Angelo Dundee put him up to that. So now he calls me from Pittsburgh one day and he says, uh, you got to come. I'm fighting Charlie Powell. I'll knock him out in two. What around do you want me to knock him out? I don't remember. I said, listen, champ, would be champ. I'm going to tell you something. I ain't coming to Pittsburgh to see you fight a former professional football player in the middle of a snowstorm. I don't like to stop in Pittsburgh for gas when the sun is shining. So you will not see me. Knocks him out and he calls me and says, you've got to. Okay, so now I figure I'll see him once. It's what I got to do. Because I, I have no faith in his boxing ability. And I'll tell you something. He became, like, like Foreman, a much better fighter later in life. After he won, well, after Foreman's come back, or after he won a title, he really, his boxing IQ just developed, bang. And Dundee had nothing to do with it. And all the people around him had nothing to do with it. He had his own boxing IQ. And he trained himself as far as I'm concerned. Angelo was great in camp because every time I was faced with that big white space in the paper, what am I going to write about? Your call and Angelo gives you a lot of bull crap and, and it's great. It fills the white space. But but Ali trained Ali. And if you want any proof of that, go back to the foreman fight. And you remember he retreats to the ropes in the first down and he stays uh, first uh, round and he stays there for about five, six rounds right, with his gloves up. And Angie and the whole corner is screaming, get off the ropes, get off the ropes. And finally, he comes back and he says, everybody shut the F up. I know what I'm doing. And I will say this for him. Every time he stepped inside those ropes, he knew what he was doing. Anyway, he stalked Liston. So now when they, now when they move the title fight from Miami to Vegas, he shows up at the casino. I, I'm trying to remember which one. I think it was Caesar's Palace. I'm not sure. Anyway, Sonny goes about his business. And in the halls, Ali's yelling at him, hey, Bear, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to blah. And Sonny laughs. Sonny was amused, and he keeps on going. Now Sonny is um, playing blackjack. And Ali is standing behind him, screaming. And now he's interfering with Sonny's thought process of the, in the game. Sonny turns on his stool. Wham! Slaps him in the face. Not hard, but sad. Ali, well, well, what'd you do that for? I'm trying to make us a lot of money. Why would you do that? Why would you hit me? Get the hell out of here. Okay. They finally get the fight. And Ali is just, I, I, here's a story. I, here's one nobody else knows. Ali was always wanted more tickets, more tickets for the fight. This is the big fight. Now, oh, I got to go back one minute. I'm sorry to ramble here. But I got to go back to Doug Jones, because I thought Doug Jones won that fight. Very close, you know, but it, 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 he didn't look great. He had to have another fight, and this is where your audience comes in. He goes to fight Sir Henry Cooper. I think Henry Cooper was- Did you come over, year. sorry, did you come over for that? Did you come to no, England for no, that? No, I did not, I did not see the fight. Well, we, he was not yet, you know, we didn't know what he was. 
So uh, I went to Africa, but I went to Malaysia, I went to Manila, but I didn't come here. But uh, to make sure my regret, because I've had many pleasant hours in uh, London. Anyway, they make the Cooper fight. Cooper, to me, was a not a good fighter. Cooper was on the cusp of a great fighter. Cooper was shortchanged by God, the high cheekbones. He cut, cut all the time. Could fight. Had a left, he had a left hook that if he couldn't use it the way Frazier did, but it could be just as devastating. So he comes over here for the fight. And uh, I, I've often joked with uh, Chuck Weppler, who bled all the time, as you remember. And Cooper bled all the time. I said, Chuck, please, before you retire, fight him once. I just want the plasma concession and I'll cash in on, on the way to the ring. Okay. Well, Ali was in, thought he was in control. Wham! Cooper hits him with a hellacious left hook. Ali is down. I will tell you this. That's the worst thing that ever happened to British heavyweight boxing because the rules were different and that's why Henry Cooper didn't become champion. You couldn't save a fighter and they dragged him to the corner. That count would have continued when the bell rang and he, He'd have lost. He couldn't get up. Okay, so he wins the fight. And now he's going to get, and he comes back, and we go through all this stuff in the casino with Liston, and all that. All right, now they're going to fight. So no, I didn't take him seriously. I mean, I, nobody could take him seriously. I, I don't see how you could. And uh, honestly, I will tell you, some of that, look, nobody who gets in the ring is a coward. Nobody. If you get in, I don't care if you're out in 11 seconds, the act of getting in. And I found that out the hard way. I had, I had, I belonged to a boxing club. I had three fights. Two of them I lost by being knocked unconscious. And the other one they gave me to get me the hell out of the gym. They were afraid they'd kill me. So no coward gets in the ring, right? So it wasn't that Ali was afraid. I'm saying when I say fear, he was afraid of losing. He didn't want to lose. It wasn't, he wasn't afraid of listening. He was afraid of losing. He had won every fight. Yeah, he was, he was convinced, he believed he, he hadn't convinced everybody. They all thought he was a bullshitter, but this was his opportunity. So he, he wasn't fear of listening. It was fear of, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to blow it. And that, that prompted a lot of the hysterical things he did. You had to be there the morning of the weigh-in. He comes through the door with an African walking stick. Listen, is sitting up on his stick. This is the Miami Beach Convention. Where's the chump? I want the chump. You're going to find out. Listen, look at him like he's crazy. But he's banging that thing. You got no chance. This is terrible. I'll murder you. You got... And listen, look around. What the hell is wrong with this guy? And then the, 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 the doctor who wants his FaceTime. You know, they all want their FaceTime on television. He said, oh, his blood pressure is near stroke. It wasn't near stroke. But he says it. All right, now I'm driving back to my hotel room to write this story. And I got a local radio station disc jockey. He's on. He said, oh, report just came in from a guy we know who's at the airport. He says, um, um, Cassius Clay is trying to buy a ticket to anywhere to get out of Miami Beach. And I'm saying, yeah, well, I, I can't believe that, but who knows? When I get to the fight, the first fight is his brother, Rahman. 
At that time, he said Clay, of course, not Ali. Uh, and uh, Rudolph Valentino Clay, his brother. And he's in the first fight. He's a professional debut. And I hear this voice, and I look back. And, well, the place was empty. You could hear the peanut vendors. I mean, nobody came to the fight. And this voice is saying, get your hands up, get your hands up, move to your left. Move to, I look, it's Ali in a sports shirt. Giving his I said, yeah, he was trying to get out of the country. Now, that didn't make me think he was going to win, but I knew damn well everything else was bullshit. Okay. At the start of the fight, he surprised. Sonny was not in shape. At the start of the fight, Sonny was laughing at him. Sonny didn't take him serious. At the start of the fight, Ali carried aggressively. The jab surprised Sonny, and he had to figure it out. Second round, of course, I think Sonny won the second round. Looked a lot better. Ali was winning the fight on my scorecard. But it wasn't this huge, horrible upset. Well, it was because it was Ali. But, I mean, there's plenty of time for Liston to catch up with him. I think the fight ended the fifth, sixth round, somewhere around here. And then he comes back to his corner, third or fourth round. I can't see. I'm blind. Take the gloves off. Take the gloves off. Well, I thought about that moment. Ali gave me a lot of moments to think about what really happened. <clears throat> Here's the way I see it. There are three possibilities. Well, when he came out for the next round, I noticed, and any fight trainer will tell you the same thing, the cut stopped briefly. It was black. That means they used Monsell and the legal substance to stop it. And Monsell is illegal for one good reason. If it gets in your eyes, it can make you blind. And you don't want the confusion in a corner where maybe something happens. So here's my theory. Number one, Willie Reddish, the trainer, put Monsell, tell told Joe Perino, put Monsell on the gloves because that was he realized that his fighter wasn't going to do well. The other possibility is that Joe Polino in the hurriedness, because they listen never had been cut, to, that that some of the Monsell got on the glove. That's a logical explanation. Another one is that Joe Polino put it on the glove. He just smiled every time I asked him that, and that was the end of that. The final thing was, though, Sonny might have, could have said it, but I don't think that Sonny thought he was going to still knock him out. But that put everything in jeopardy. Ali's association with the Nation of Islam had just come in, and that's not his Islamic association. Of course, when he died, till the day he died, the last 20 years, he was a devout Sunni Muslim, and I know that for a fact, because he was my friend. But at this time, it was a Nation of Islam. And I think, it, I think it exists also in Great Britain, I don't know. It's a religion, but it, at times it becomes a little bit of a cult. And when they came to camp, all of a sudden, everybody was replaced, the hangers on, replaced by these guys. And they were sitting underneath his corner. And when he jumped up a blind, a blind, they started screaming at Angela, you, what did you put in his eye? But, you know, Angela got scared, took the towel he was working on to wipe Ali's eyes clean. But I'm not sure it was the same towel and rubbed his eyes with it and said, see, it's not, it's not me, it's something else. So they get him out to the ring, and of course we know what happens. He wins like a thief that round, and then he 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 wins the damn fight. Clearly, Sonny sits on his stool and isn't going to get off. Two things in Sonny's life 
made me think about something he had told me. That was one. Why didn't he get off the stool? Remember, the cut was below the eye. You get it up here, you're in trouble. The blood goes into the eye. This blood has nowhere to go but down the side of your face. So why did he sit on his stool? And why did he not get up after he was down in Lewiston in his second flight? <clears throat> so anyone's told me, yeah. And by the way, there was a punch. And I can prove, I can explain it to you, but let's not... Hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Get ahead of us. No, we'll, anyway. we'll, we'll we'll get to that in just a sec. I'll just yeah. fill in just a little a little bit of context from from some of the things some yes. of the things you've said there. I don't I don't want to, I want to interrupt as as uh, as little as possible. I mean the. Everything around those two fights, and particularly that first one, was was you mentioned the Nation of Islam, and and you know Elijah Muhammad was was around that week. Malcolm X was there. This was there were political influences around. No, Elijah, around... no, Malcolm was here, not Elijah. Okay, okay, um, and but there were there was a lot of political. There were goings on around that fight that that you can't really. That only you could understand, really, if you were if you were actually if you were actually there. And um, that fight was not fixed. I don't care what anybody says, he, because the most surprised guy in the building was Ali. I mean, that's when he ran over. I, I fooled you. I fooled you. I fooled you. If you remember, he was leaning through the ropes, and pointing at me too. And and uh, the second fight, everybody says no punch, phantom punches, and that. I want to explain that, and then we can put it both together. The second fight, listen, went to Plymouth Rock to train for. There isn't much you can do in Plymouth Rock. Yeah, the ocean's still there. It's out there. There isn't much else you can do. He got in the best shape of his life. He looked so good. I was going to pick him to beat Ali in the second fight. And then Ali, something always, some little, something's always looking after Ali as, as a, one of the uh, uh, fight people that said to me, he popped his freaking G-string. He got a hernia. And they had to stop the fight. I mean, they had to postpone it. Six months. Sonny Wilson could not get back in that shape. He was an old man. He couldn't possibly. And he decided the only way I can win this fight is to knock him out in the first round. And if you watch that round, he goes after him. He throws a million jabs. He misses a million jabs. And every time you miss a punch, you're off balance. And, and Ali's got his right hand up real high. And if you look at it, it's so quick, he chops it down. Just because, because Winston has missed it, he's off balance. You could have pushed him with your index finger, he would have gone down. So, yes, there was a punch, but technically it made Tommy, it made contact. Yes, it put him down because he was off balance. Could it keep him down? Hell no. Now, if you remember the sequence, and I'm going to go back to what Liston told me, and it goes to Winston. He didn't say it. He said it long before that. 
they Allie wouldn't go to the neutral corner. You remember that? He's, get up, Chump. They're not going to believe it. Get up, Chump. Get up. You know, and they had to shove him to a neutral corner, which gave Liston a little time to think when he was laying down there. And I thought about not then, but later on, trying to figure out the mystery here. I thought about the first fight when he didn't get off his stool. I thought about the second fight when uh, Ali had that look in his eye and he stayed down and he wasn't hit hard enough to stay down because he did get up. And I realized he had told me something one day about, about prison. He said, you know, I don't worry about those big weightlifters in the yard, the six, four and five guys with all the muscles. They come around and give me some crap. I take care of that. It's the five foot seven guy with that look in his eye. I don't want any part of and, and prisons and education uh, in some ways. Not a good one, but it is. And therefore, I think that was his logic behind it, his loss of the surgery. He would have lost his If he got up, Ali, he was right. Ali would have knocked him out of the ring by then. But, but, the, uh, but I, I really believe that he stayed down in the second fight for his own purposes. And the first fight, he figured... It's a freak. I'll knock him out next time. Anyway, to hell with it. I'm, I'm not going to go out and get another more fight. Because he was losing that fight. Um, and he, it's, uh, he's, he's a great enigma. But like I say, the chapter in the book about, about listen, is called The Gatekeeper. Because by losing the second fight, Carbo no longer has a heavyweight. Blinky no longer has a heavyweight. Heavyweights are, are free at last, sort of. Nobody in boxing is ever free at last. But anyway, so that's those two guys. Ali went on. He, he did things that he amazed me so many times. I want to tell you a story about Ali and, and Corman, if you want to hear it. Always. Okay. Ali's going to fight Foreman. I've just come from interviewing Foreman. It's the first time I met Foreman. And we hit it off right away. Which was saying, oh, the bad guys always hit it off of me. And at that time, for me, he was a bad guy. He learned a lot in his life later. And he's, he's a good friend. But in the early days, he was a bad guy. In the bloody Fifth Ward in Houston, he would hit people over the head just for their cigarettes. That was who it was. And when he went to the Peace Corps, which the judge said, Peace Corps or what? And he said, I don't want to know what. I'll go to the Peace Corps. And, uh, it was it was quite interesting, but Ali. Two things about that fight. Number one, Ali's boxing IQ won that fight, but Ali's fist did not. He his warfare with Liston. I mean, with with uh, uh, Foreman. Africa won that fight. He put him in. He made him uncomfortable. Look, he's coming. To, he's coming here for the first time. He's at the top of the of the, the stairs. The stairs go down to the tarmac. Coming out of it, and he puts his hands up, and they're screaming and hollering. Oh, this is their hero, right? And he says um, to Gene Kilroy, the, the business manager, "Who are these people? Who is it they don't like?" And poor Gene says, well, I'm white. I'm not going to say white people. So I tell him the Belgians were there. Ali couldn't say Belgians. He always said Belgians. He said, Sonny Liston is a Belgian. 
And then he says to them, of course, the crowd starts, Ali Bumaye. He picks that up, and that is his theme song from that moment on till it's over. I saw him in the gym in, in Shelly, the military complex where we were living. After it's over, you know, he takes the microphone, he walks around the room, he's, trying, he's got a whole audience of Zaiwa, uh, you know, people from Zaire. And he says, you know, I'm told the Belgians were very mean to your people, you people. I'm told that the Belgians uh, put dogs on you, attacked you. And they're all saying, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. He said, well, did you see the big dog that Sonny, that Foreman came here with? It's a Belgium shepherd. The whole place goes wild. He said, I hereby proclaim that George Foreman is a white man and a Belgium. So, I mean, he owned the whole country, you know, you couldn't miss it. Um, and the fight itself, I was puzzled in the beginning when he went to the corner. Look, having, I've seen a fight like 90 times now, having, Watch it again. I realized he got hit close to the throat in that first round. He went to the ropes because he, he, he was hurting. And he, put, he says, I'll put my hands up. I'll try to figure it out. Well, here's Listen with arms as wide as steel workers trying to, because he didn't know how to fight at that point. He's trying to go through Ali's gloves. He could have broken his arms. He's trying to go through Ali's gloves and the gloves aren't moving. And he doesn't, he ain't getting through. And now he's thinking it and he's making his praying and everything else. And when he came off those ropes, if you check the film, the round before, he tested him. He hit him with the right hand and forward backed up a little bit. Then the next round was a round. Right, left, superfluous right hand. It was over. And I want to tell you something. People always ask me how I remember Ali because of our friendship. Two ways. The first was the night of that fight. It poured a tropical African rainstorm an hour after the fight. If it had been an hour earlier, there would have been no fight. Okay. Number one, someone was looking after Ali. Number two, he leaves and goes back to the. I'm writing. I can't talk to him. All right. Now, Dave Anderson from the Times, the late Dave Anderson. Good guy, good writer, pure surprise winner. We're, uh, we're on this bus going back, and I said, Dave, I'm not happy with what I wrote. It was just, you know, it had to be done so fast. It had to be done. I, did. I want to go look for him. You want to come with me? He said, Yeah, I do, but where the hell are we going to find him? It's a four or 500 acre military. I said, I know where he'll be if we can find him. He's going to go to the river because he's into all this mysticism. We go down by the Congo. They were calling it the Zaire River then. Halfway, the other half of it was the Congo River. And I, there he is. And he's looking out at what used to be French Congo. And his arms are up in the rocky pose. And he's staring across the river. And we don't say a word. He doesn't know we're there. Now, the interesting thing about this is he's not performing. As far as he knows, he is all alone in the world. He can't see us. We're behind him on this little hill. And he's yelling. We can't tell what he's yelling. Then he puts his arms down, turns around, starts to walk, and he sees us. And he gets to us and says, fellas, don't ask me about what last night or tonight meant to me. 
because you wouldn't understand and I couldn't explain it. But when I think about him today, I think about him with those arms raised to the heavens. In that moment, he was truly the king of the world. That's one way I remember him. The other way, huh? No, go on, go on, sorry. The other way uh, is that I try to forget everything about the Holmes fight. I don't root for fighters, I can't. I mean, I, I never, I, I bet, but I never bet on the Kentucky Derby because I thought I'd never, I'd be looking for my horse, I'd never see what happened in a race. So I try to keep objectivity. I absolutely lost my objectivity the night that he fought Holmes, not because I wanted him to win the fight. I wanted him not to take the fight, but anyway, you know, he couldn't throw a punch. And, and uh, I jumped up and yelled at Richard Green, the referee, Richard, Richard, stop it. You're going to get him killed. And I realized what I had done. It was the worst breach. Of, I can't say sports etiquette because there is no etiquette in sports, but whatever the accepted norm is, I couldn't believe I did it. Well, afterwards, I'm walking around at the casino. Sinatra's in the showroom, and he starts to bullshit talk about he just came from Alley's room. I said, I don't want to hear that. I go gamble. So I lost. And I gambled some more and I lost some more. Now I'm getting pissed off because I'm losing bets. So now I go into the men's room, <clears throat> four o'clock in the morning. And this old Afro-American guy is handing out towels. I say, old. Oh, today he'd be a kid to me. Back then he was old, right? He's got a face like an aerial map of the Burma Road, you know, with his wrinkle here, star here, hands me a towel. And I say, sir, I don't, don't think I'm really presumptive, but do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, sure, go ahead. Did you bet on this fight? And he said to me, I sure did. And I knew it was superfluous, but I said, and on whom did you bet? And he looked at me and he said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. Find a better eulogy. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. No, that was I remember reading that. I remember reading that in a book and uh Matt, just 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 hearing just hearing all of this, it's um, it's reminded that this this was a time when when the heavyweight championship of the world was the number one thing in sport, and if you were fighting for it, if you, if you if you held it, then you were one of the most recognisable. In Ali's case, the most recognisable. The baddest guy on the planet was the heavyweight champ. Exactly on the entire planet, on the entire planet. I mean, think, things are always going to change, aren't they? But. For well, us, it, for us, much. it's kind of it, it gives a sense of. I mean, it's, it's history, isn't it? It's it's it's. You never get bored of hearing this stuff because it Listen, was. I've been in this business a long, long time, maybe too long. My readers would think, but I will say this: the most they always talk about the most exciting two minutes in sports is the Kentucky Derby. Boom, 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 boom. It ain't the most exciting moment, and, and the most exciting moment is gone. They would say it'd be the first pitch in the World Series, it would be the Derby. I mean, you're sitting at ringside 
It's before all the bullshit. No smoke, no mirrors, no wraps, no no uh, costumes, no mask on the on the fighter. Not nothing. All you hear is a murmur, and it starts to grow, and it starts to grow more. Now it's a crescendo. This is. It gets louder each time somebody else catches sight of the fighters on their way to the ring. There's no music, no trumpets, no nothing, no light show. When they step into the ring, it is a roar, is a roar that, that could rival um, the old uh, uh, super plane, uh, the Concord, when it takes off. That was the excitement. And on doing that, because boxing is boxing. Remember the beautiful thing about boxing, if you really want to know what, most people don't know what the hell they say. And, amen. Most fans don't know. Some of my colleagues may, may not quite know, but it's the easiest sport to fake because nobody saw which the Florida point. The fans are out of it. They, they're, not, they're not trained to try to track what's happening. So you can write anything you want. But, but it's the most satisfactory when you get it right. Everybody thought Joe Lewis was knocking out people with a right hand. Because that's what they saw. He threw a left hook to the solar plexus that traveled not that far, maybe six, eight inches. You were out on your feet. And as you were going down, the right followed because that's what you're taught. And because that's what they saw. He knocked him out with a right hand. It reminds me of being in the dressing room. And the late Jimmy Cannon, a wonderful, wonderful sports a wonderful columnist. He's really kind of teaching me things. That, uh, I was a kid. I was the youngest columnist in the country. And uh, uh, this guy had lost the fight. And we go to lose his dressing room. And then some jerk says, did you see the punch that knocked you out? And Cannon says, for Christ's sake, if he saw the punch, we'd be in the other locker room. Yeah, exactly. So we, 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 we have a habit of, of, of really saying the right. I, I think to this day, if I had spoken up too quickly with Sonny, I never would have gotten that quote about the tribe following the, the chief in the battle. Uh, so it was a golden era. It really was. And it was followed by some pretty good guys and, and pretty good fighters. Um, uh, Holmes was no slouch. We'll get um, to, if, 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 if yeah. it's okay, we'll, we'll get to Holmes in just a little bit. But Whatever, um... whatever you want. Um, I've got a slight, a slight order for this, a slight order for this. Or things that things are always flexible. But but Matt, just um, yeah, just listening to all this stuff, you know, it was it was an era where there were rivalries, um, and where it seemed like the really big fights got made. Yeah, it was before all the politics and and, and different networks. There was one network, probably, I guess, and there was one promoter and one commission. You know. I'm sure. No, they, well, that's the Las Vegas Commission got away with murder. Yeah, but what? But, but it was easier to make the fights. You know, it wasn't as there wasn't several networks, so the, the big fights generally got made. And I think because there were great rivalries around, it made the sport bigger and it made well, their own right. career. You're right, but but again, there was another factor. One more factor made it easier to work, make fights. Frankie Carbo. Frankie Carbo, you know what he was? He was murdering. He he. he he killed seven people, so I think he uh, he finally sharpened up his aim, I guess. And he, he was a button man, and he, and he rose to, to own boxing. And Carbo knew boxing, <clears throat> really knew it. And Carbo made, would make the fights he wanted to see. 
because he knew who was good. And, you know, but then he then because I a friend of mine was he's gone long gone now. He made a fight with Carbo Sanction and and he said you can have the fight. And and my friend said just like that. He said it's absolutely usual rules apply. So my friend said, what are the usual rules? When the fighter wins, we own him. We, well, when do I get him back? When he loses. And that was a big factor in making fights. Uh, he did it. He absolutely, after he lost the last heavyweight, he still was a major force, particularly in the lightweight uh, division. And that's what tripped him up. And that's what got him sent to the penitentiary. But um, you're right. You're right about the things you're saying. And again, some fighters got fights because my father <clears throat> went to one heavyweight championship fight because somebody gave him a ticket. He couldn't rub two quarters together. And it was uh, Joe Lewis and a fighter named Johnny Paycheck. Johnny Paycheck had about as much right to be in the ring with Joe Lewis as I had. When he came down the aisle, they had to hold him up. He was so scared. That fight never should have been made, but whoever but whoever controlled Paycheck, whoever was a manager of record, was working for Carbo. Well, so I, I, right. I, I always assume um, quite a lot of knowledge on behalf of uh, Macklin's take listeners, but um, I, I think you'll all be aware of this, but Frankie Carbo and Flicky Palermo were, were, were mob guys, mafia guys, who, with the help of a guy called Jim Norris from the International Boxing Club, basically managed partners, to... Silent partners. Silent, <laughs> silent Absolutely. partners. Absolutely. But... We're basically able to run. And he better be silent too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You definitely got the impression that, that, yeah. that, yes, quite. You were told to keep your mouth shut, and that's what happened. And they basically ran, they basically ran boxing. Um, they owned a lot of fighters. It, you'll have watched Raging Bull, and you've seen what happened with Lamotta and, and Billy Fox, and then Lamotta giving evidence later on at the at the what was the the Kiefer for inquiry, and there was all sorts of things that went on. But as as, as Jerry was saying, it kind of disappeared with. Um, uh, with Liston, but it is really, really interesting. All of that stuff, absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and there's there's some good stuff written about that. There's a couple of good books that I've that I've that I've found that that kind of explain it all. If you're really if you're really into it. But one thing we do need to get onto because this is a fight that we haven't really spoken about, me and Matt, that that we absolutely love, and it doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. Um, I don't think. And I'm going I'm to dip into the book uh, because it's the thriller in Manila, which is. Unbelievable, oh. unbelievable fight. But people would talk about the fight of the century. They talk about the rumble in the jungle. So I'm just going to read out something that Jerry wrote because I just thought this was like two or three brilliant paragraphs about this fight. So it's in Manila, obviously. Um, uh, and there's Marcos there, Ferdinand Marcos. And one thing he did, the, the, the president basically, one thing he did was put on this massive gold trophy for the for the for the fight, thinking this would be this would be a further incentive mm. for the fighters to want to win. Um I think what you wrote here just kind of it sums up the fights between these two and particularly this one uh, perfectly. Incentive? Hell, that was the last thing these guys needed. They didn't need Manila. They didn't need a trophy and they didn't need a world championship belt. As passionate as their rivalry always was and as unforgiving as their assessments of each other would be forever, they knew what they were fighting for. They were fighting for the world championship of each other. And that kind of performance has never been duplicated since. They could have fought in a phone booth or on a melting ice floe. It was all the room they needed. Theirs was an involvement without end. Before this day on which they wrote their final September song, it was clear that one's name would never be mentioned without the other. 
They remained tightly linked to time travellers for decades, even after they left the city of Manila. It was the greatest fight I ever saw. Hell, I think it was the greatest fight anyone ever saw. Matt, that's 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 it there, isn't it? In 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 what a hundred words? I mean, there was it was nothing, just there's nothing, extraordinary. There was nothing there's nothing that fight to me that rivalry has never been settled ever. Again, it was like Henry Cooper. God decided because Joe always fought in a crouch, and he had his eyes were getting hurt. I mean, swollen, and he had to straighten up to see, and that was probably what decided. But I'll tell you this: I don't go much for judges' scorecards generally. I think one thing that they are deficient in, and, and maybe they haven't, it's hard. Maybe they can't, they don't see the body blows enough, you know? And, and this kill the head and the body dies, I think it's the other way around very often. Kill the legs and the guy can't stand. And, and basically, um, they don't see a lot of that. So my scorecard was this. Going into the final round, I had Ali ahead by one point. Joe knocks him down. Joe wins the fight. Joe doesn't knock him down, but wins the round. On my scorecard, it's a draw. And I, and I really emotionally, maybe I was a little affected. I think it should have been a draw. I remember, I remember like in the 11th round, turning to Jerry Lister, rest in peace. He was a, he had worked in England for a while uh, for, for Rupert Murdoch, and he was now the sports editor of the um, New York Post. And I said, Jerry, why don't they just say they both won the fight and send them home? I just don't want to see any more of this. I love fights. Um, basically, for the same reason most people do, nobody's hitting me at ringside. So, you know, you, you can appreciate what you. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Well, I think it's one of the probably the most legendary calls in boxing history for Eddie Futch to make the decision to pull Joe Frazier out before the final round. And, and actually, Ali was probably on his last legs. He may not have come out for the last round had, had he not made that call. Who knows? You have it right on the money. Let me tell you, Gene Kilroy, who's really a close friend of mine, the guy from Ali's camp, swears that Ali went down to the ground after the fight because he didn't want to get hurt by the people running in. He can say what he wants. I don't think he could have taken five more steps forward. And as far as Joe Fre as far as Eddie Fletch goes, I can tell you the conversation. Eddie was a friend of mine and Joe Frazier was a friend of mine. I'll tell you what happened. George Benton was told, cut off the gloves. And Joe said, I'll kill him and I'll kill you. Don't touch those gloves. And Eddie Fritz said, listen, son, your eyesight and your eyes are worth much more to me than winning this fight. And it was cut and nothing crazy was berserk, but there's nothing he could do about it. Now, you know, um, 
one more one word about Ben because I think you under, you'll understand. And most people don't know this. You know, Ali always talked in the ring. Always talked in the ring. He used to say to me, "Why do you write that? I don't talk in the ring." He didn't. He was so emotional and so he was charged up. He he didn't know what he did, but he did talk always. When he fought Frazier the first time, and they told him, "You don't knock him out in the fifteenth, you lose the title." He came out and he stopped the count and that jab is moving and a right uppercut. Frazier didn't go backwards. He never went backwards in his life at that point, but he stopped in his tracks. And then he stepped inside. He hit him with a left hook. And Ali is screaming before that, fool, fool, fall down. Don't you know you can't stand it? God has, Allah has proclaimed I will be the champion forever. And you can't stand against God. And Joe threw that left hook and it hit him on a temple. And he said, well, God's getting his ass whipped tonight. That's a true story. Please pray she told me that story. Now in Manila, before they got to Manila, as you know, I always used to kid Frazier. I used to say, you know, Joe, if your right shoelace becomes untied, you're going to trip because you've got no right hand whatsoever. And as a result, um, Fletch had said to him, we had three months to prepare. George, that's why you're brought into camp. You teach him to throw a right hand. I don't care if it's a weak right hand. I don't care if it misses. I want Allie, who thinks all the time, to say, where did that come from? Because he's never been hit by right hand. Frazier never hit anybody by right hand, just about. Well, Frazier was in trouble the first two rounds. If you remember that fight, he could have gone. And he hits Ali with the right hand, and Ali jumps back, and Ali yells at Frazier, you ain't got no right hand. You're an old man. You ain't got no right hand. And he says, well, go ask George Benton, and he hits him with another right. That stopped the flow and turned it in Frazier's direction for a couple of rounds. And it was like a, a, a monetary chart. Most thrilling fight in the world with no knockdowns. It, it was a, if it were a graph, it'd be up and down. Ali's up. Ali's down, Frazier's up, Frazier's down, and it continued that, and it continued that way right to the end. And and to me, um, I just you know there were very few clinches in that fight, and I'm gonna tell you why that was, if you're interested in that. Uh, they had a Filipino referee named Sonny Padilla, who later came to Vegas, and Fletch had a guy he wanted, and. Um, Angelo had a guy he wanted, and neither one was Filipino, so they united on one thought. We don't want a Filipino referee because he's too small, too slight to be able to part these guys. And then in came the head of the Filipino Boxing Commission at the Rules Committee meeting. He takes out a 45, puts it on the table, and he says, I have made a decision. This fight will be worked by a Filipino referee. He taps the 45 and he says, do I have any arguments? Not a word. And in comes the guy. It's Sonny Padilla. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but there was an American quarterback named, um, uh, we had a, it was an, he was an only quarterback. He was a great guy, played for the Rams, and he was a Filipino. And uh, he was the tallest, widest Filipino I ever saw in my life. And this guy was bigger than him. And, when it, and, and to make sure there were no clinches, the first thing he did in this fight, Ali had a habit, and I know I can tell from what you're saying, you know what I'm talking about. He put his glove behind the guy's head, pull it down, 
throw an uppercut. And the first time he did it, he said, he stopped. Next time a point, the time after that, you're out of the building. Frazier hit him low at the bell in different round. And he said, next time a point, after that, you're out of the building. And they knew the guy many. They kept thinking about that 45, I think. But it made it made for, I mean, you know, look, I have to confess something that most people, most people think my first fight was Cain and Abel. What they don't know is that my camel died on the way to the arena. I didn't get there till the third round, so I really can't accurately tell you what happened in that fight. <laughs> I know one guy was marked up right down the forehead, but this was the greatest heavyweight fight ever, ever held. And the greatest single heavyweight round was Holmes and Norton. Because uh, I, is, and is, I'll tell you, is, I'll tell sorry, you why. Because uh, I knew that Holmes had torn a muscle from here down to here. At the week of the, he tore it just before, like 10 days before the fight. I got him a guy, a physical therapist, who worked with him and said, you will be able to use that left hand. But I'm telling you this. He said, well, I want you in my corner. He said, I can't help you in the corner because if you hit me, if you get hit on that muscle, you got, you can't use your left hand the rest of the fight. You won't be able to. Holmes was ahead and Holmes slowed down. He got hit on the bicep and then asked little by little, Norton kept catching up. When they went out for the 15th round, for once, the judges had it right. Who wins the 15th round is the heavyweight champion. And, and Holmes said, the hell with it. I'm going to throw the left hand. And because he was getting, he was close to being knocked out in the first half of the ring. Then he throws the left hand. He hits him with a hook. And then he wins the round and he wins the title. And, uh, but that was the best heavyweight round. And I'll give you a bonus, the best boxing round the most exciting first round in any weight I ever saw in my life, Hearns and Hagler. Hagler was across the ring. Hagler, Hearns, Hearns was a good punch. I mean, he was, he was ferocious. He hits Hagler right here. He opens a cut up here. Now, in the, this, this is a serious cut because the blood is going like this to the eyes and the referee's looking and looking. And by the end of the round, Hagler fights back, but it was just, it, 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 it was the greatest single round because Hagler didn't budge. Now, at the end of the round, my boxing writer, I said to him, who did you give the round to? He takes his pencil, breaks it in half, and throws it over his shoulder. And I said, I'm going to tell you what happened. Hearns won the round. Hagler just won the fight. Best right hand Hearns ever threw. Now what can I do? Get a gun? There's nothing left. And how to approve it in the third round. But that was the best first round of action ever. It was interesting hearing you talk there, Jerry, about the Kenny Norton, Larry Holmes. Because I think that's one of the forgotten great Brilliant fights. Fight. Brilliant fight. I watched it this afternoon. I watched it this afternoon because I was picking back through the book and I thought I watched it for ages. And and it's an absolutely amazing fight, that. Is that is it kind of is that sort of typical of of Holmes's career in that he won the title in 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 one of the best heavyweight fight, fights you'll ever see, but people don't really remember it, and he doesn't ever really seem to get the credit that he deserved for his career well, in general. Well, no, you're talking about that was Holmes. Yeah. Holmes yeah. Went, yeah, but you're talking, how did Norton get to be champion? That's the reason he didn't get, uh, Holmes didn't get the credit. Uh, because he was by diploma. The WBC anointed him because 
I'm not, uh, I, mean, I don't want to say more than I should say. All I will say is he had great influence from the Norton corner to make him the champion. Remember, Norton had put an elimination fight with Jimmy Young, which I thought Jimmy Young won. But Jimmy Young was a great boxer, if nothing else. He'd make you look bad. That's why nobody wanted to fight him. He'd make you look terrible. And Norton didn't look too great, but he wins the fight. And it was an elimination fight. Ali says, I'm not going to fight him uh, because something else came up. And uh, so Suleiman gave him his diploma, made him champion. And the greatest trivia, you'll knock him dead at cocktail parties. I'm going to tell you right now, both of you. Who is the only guy, the only heavyweight champion who never won a heavyweight championship fight? Ken Norton. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, he, 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 but it was just an amazing fight. That an absolutely well, he, he extraordinary was a good fight. fighter. He, you know what his biggest problem was? Well, first of all, he had Ali's number. Yeah. He beat him the, the first time. He's bogeyman. The, I, w- I went to three fights, to all three fights. The second fight, I thought Norton won. The third fight, I had to give it to Ali because Norton acted like an idiot. He was so far ahead from the 12th round on, he didn't throw a punch. He kept sticking his tongue out, jumping up and down. If a guy didn't throw a punch, I can't give him the round. I had Ali winning by a point. Although going up to then, you know, it was clearly Norton's fight. Yeah, he... He was so happy. He wanted. He wanted to get back at Ali. To him, he he knew he beat him the first time. Well, everybody knew he broke his jaw. The second time was close, and he thought he was robbed. And the third time, uh, uh, he he robbed himself. And it's yeah, too but, Ken, but Kenny Norton was probably one of the probably the underrated fighter of that batch of great heavyweights. But the the way George Foreman blew him out of there was just breathtaking, wasn't it? Well, he he had trouble with punchers. Not because uh, you're talking about Norton now, right? Because yeah, yeah. You know, well, you know how he, you know he knocked him out with a jab. Did you know that? A jab. I was there in Caracas, and I was sitting next to Eddie Fudge, and he hit him with a jab. And he looked at Norton, and he said to me, "Lean," because he had trained Norton before he, before when he went back to his train. He leaned over and he said to me, "Fight's over, Jerry," and it was. Well, listen. Uh, what about my? What about the jab that straightened out Michael Moore until the right hand came? After that right hand, you could have counted to fifty. But uh, he, uh, it's interesting, you know. People don't the things that I look for. You know what was it to me the most exciting portion, outside of their courage and their skills, of the rivalry? The second fight was horrible. Believe me, if I didn't have to cover it, I would have walked out. It was terrible. Because neither one wanted to be there. He there was no title. Joe wanted his rematch, and and Ali wanted to go after uh, Foreman. So the the fight was hard. Second fight was horrible. But the third fight, Joe made it a fight because Ali. You know, I'll tell you, Ali fought in Malaysia against um, uh, English Joe Bugner, and that was it was, it was if it were a baseball game, it would have been a no hitter. I mean, it was terrible. And I'm walking down the hall that afternoon, the day before the fight, he calls it. We only had eight guys, uh, eight writers were there, American writers anyway. Calls us to his room and he says, fellas, I'm tired of it. I've been boxing since I'm 14. I'm going to quit after this. I'm retiring. So now we got a time difference. We went to our room. We were writing like hell. Ali quits and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, Anderson and I are walking down the hall to get lunch. And Ali's door is open. 
and I hear, the man can't fight. He can't fight. He's an old man. I'll knock him on his ass. I'll retire him. I'll... Well, when we get there, we walk in the room and doors are open. He says, hey, look at this. He's watching an old, a recent Frazier fight on the, on the television screen. The rerun. He said, uh, what do you think? He said, he's got no chance against me. I said, I thought you retired two hours ago. I know he didn't. And he said, well, I was just trying to sell tickets. I said, well, I'll tell you what. As of now, for the two of us, you better freaking well unretire right now. I ain't running back and writing a third story. So don't change your mind. You're not retiring. I'm writing it. That's the end of it. And uh, he left. And uh, that's how I knew he was going to fight Frazier. Nobody was talking about that fight at all. It wasn't even made. It wasn't even in the, on the horizon. He made that fight himself because he thought it was no contest. So before we, before we, uh, we've got about 10 more minutes. Um, Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson, given that you've seen all of the, all of the greats in the sixties and the seventies, where would you place a peak Mike Tyson? Because a lot of the time people look back at people's careers and they can go one of two ways. Somebody who, somebody can become greater than they maybe were. With others, people look back on their careers and they like to criticise and say that they, you know, maybe they weren't as good as people th- think they were at the time. And that seems to be the case for Tyson. A lot of these days now, people say, "Oh well, as soon as he ran into someone who was who was going to give it back to him, you know, he didn't want to know." But eight, late '86 to, to mid 1990, when he won his first world title, uh, mid 1989, sorry, so he wins his first world title in late '86. Mid-89, he stopped Spinks, and he's done it all then. He's undisputed, and he's got the linear title. That Tyson, um, how good was he? Because you, you, you saw all these guys. He was the best that was out there at that point. But, you know... Um, Would he have lived with the likes of Joe Frazier and Ken Norton and George Foreman, in your opinion, Jerry? I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to cop out a little bit. I don't like... Uh, uh, you know, uh, hypotheticals because it's enough hypotheticals in I mean, you you watch two guys get up the morning of the fight. You don't know which guy is, has gas or didn't get laid three weeks before or you, you just don't know what's in their mind. You know what I'm saying? And 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 I know fighters who, who I'm not going to give you his name. He was the greatest um, appreciation of beauty. I'll put it that way that I ever knew. And I remember him getting laid three times the day of a fight and he was a world champion. But we'll let that go by. What I'm saying is you don't know how to get the hypothetical things are bad. And 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 like all sports, boxing changes. The boxing um, modus operandi when Ali beat Liston, nothing to do with what follows it later on. As different side, you know. Joe Frazier was a shrimp, you know, compared to most heavyweights, a little guy. And here he is down below beating the crap out of you. Uh, everybody has something. It's like, you know, Frazier, uh, Tyson's big thing, they made a song out of it. Everybody has a plan till they get hit in the mouth. And my thought about that is, this is what I told Ali. There's somebody out there for everybody. Now, Foreman affirmed that for me in a private conversation about a month ago. He said to me, look, you're always writing styles make fights, styles make fights. 
you're absolutely right, but you don't know why. I'm going to prove it to you. He said, I fight Ali 100 times. He's going to beat me 99. I fight Frazier 100 times. I'm going to knock him out 100 times. They fight each other, and it's life and death. The styles make it that way. And that's what, what made Ali and Frazier so unique, okay? They were fighting in the beginning of that fight and every fight they ever fought. And like many other fights before it, but not every fight, you have to have great fighters for it. They were fighting for the territorial imperative. Joe wanted to make that ring like nine feet wide, that's all. So he could bow Ali to the ropes and do what he had to do. Ali wanted to make the five miles wide. And they were fighting, who was gonna, and, and, and they were so close in skills that that territorial imperative in, in their third fight kept changing, you know, in the but, first but Jerry, fight, I mean, it was, it was, it was the ultimate boxer versus fighter, wasn't it? Jack yeah, that's what I, that's yeah. the thing you can't, you don't find this, you know, if you think in American, you don't find it in football, in Amer American football, in American baseball, they talk about the pitcher versus the batter, which is really a showdown thing, but it's still not like, two great fighters, each capable of ending the fight, each capable of winning the fight by decision, and each knowing it's got to control the ring. Fighter boxer, that's the greatest thing, I think. And so just finally, before um, this will be the last one, we'll make this the last one. We're hoping that we're going to see a fight between Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury. Um, People have been, been talking about it for a long time and talking confidently about it for quite a long time, the promoters, but still no, no concrete news. Um, what do you make of those two, given all the fighters you've seen down the years? As you say, and, and I do agree, I, I'm not one for hypotheticals either. I think you do what you do in your own era and that's really all you can do. But just, just watching and just looking at them as, as characters, as boxers, are you impressed by those two? or you know, who, well, do you think, I'll, I'll, who do you think I'll, will win? I'll tell you what, first of all, what I think of each fighter individually. Um, Joshua did not impress me in the beginning, except, you know, he's, he was a young fighter. When I decided, in two, I wasn't going to annoy him, but I decided that he deserved a lot of further study because I think there was a lot of potential there, was Klitschko. Not when he knocked Klitschko down, but when Klitschko knocked him down. If you, Klitschko took him to school when he hit him with that right hand and he more than survived, he knew how to survive. And, he, and that showed me, and that was more instinct than training. That showed me this guy's a fighter. With Tyson Fury, I think the biggest thing in his life was the change in trainers. Um, I thought he would win the second fight for two or three reasons. First fight, I, I I, see, I, 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 I hate to say it this way because, again, you have to respect the guy who fight. But the guy who beat him the, uh, the first time, uh, a one-armed fighter, you know, and, and, and spends forever trying to throw the one arm. And they'll throw it 20 times. And he's a little better now, but he, he, that's who he was. Tyson Fury, when Tyson Fury got up after he was knocked down, remember that in the last round, I guess it was. 
I, I, I thought he was dead. I, didn't, I couldn't believe he got up. The only time I ever saw anything like that was when Holmes fought Shavers and Shavers hit him with the right hand, which is a death warrant. And he went down face first and got up. That's when I said, he's got heart. Uh, also, he's got a chin. But, but in this case, I, I felt in the second fight, 90% of what, well, not 90, 40% of what happened was the change in trainers. Now, I'm not knocking the other guy, but this guy found a formula better suited to Tyson Fury. And I'm not saying the other guy trained him wrong. I'm not saying that. But because he gave a pretty good account of himself in the first fight with the other guy. But I think uh, he tapped something in him. That was yeah, tactically in the second fight, he was brilliant, yes. wasn't he? And the second part of it is, now, I admire what he went through to straighten out and win that championship. So to answer directly, it's, directly, it's a cowardly hedge, but you know, that's me. Uh, these two guys fight. I don't know which one I'm going to see. And there's a reason for each fighter not to be what people are expecting. I don't know. Tyson Fury's been off what? How long? A year and a half? Two years? I don't know what he's done in that period. I don't I haven't seen him box. I haven't seen him. I haven't even heard anything. You know, and he came from the shadow of hell to, to, to get straightened out. So I don't know what's up, and I don't know how he trained. It's the second thing. The other guy, the other guy has has these lapses. He's had them a couple of times, and I and he's really not been tested since he's had a couple of big tests. So I, so you ask me who's going to win? I don't know. Can it be a great fight? I always think every fight can be a great fight because the one thing about boxing, unlike any other sport, you can make a case for the guy who you know is going to get knocked out in the first round, but there's something you can say, some little thing you cling to. And if you're the kind of guy who puts money on the fight, you're, you're swarming to that little thing. I the long odds, so let me take it because he can do this or do that. And don't ask me to pick a winner. Let me, uh, in fact, I'm not even traveling anymore because of my legs at my age, but if they were to fight in Vegas, uh, then I, I could at least look at them and see. Um, one other thing I would question everybody, do not get too excited. This fight is not made until the bell rings. And I always talk about the Emirates and everything else. I want to see because you, you've got two promoters involved. And promoters are promoters. Why is it promoters, when you ask them a question, they always answer like that out of the side of their mouth? There's a reason. Always, there's always a better plan. There's always something else they have up their sleeve. And the two, I believe. I, and again, this is without knowing the fighters since I did, I did get to know uh, Fury and uh, I don't really know Joshua at all. I did get to know Fury because he was fought here twice in Vegas. I, um, I believe the fighters want to fight each other. I do. Um, but like, they used to, like my mother used to tell me, and, but she'd say it in Yiddish, but I'll say it in English for you. Be careful what you wish for you might get it. Well, we, we, we will so don't just... Don't ask me to pick a winner. Yeah, we'll just have to wait. Hopefully, it is going to happen. Um, maybe it's, hope- maybe now it's looking more likely that it'll happen a bit later in the year than we, than we originally thought. But we're in such strange times at the minute. You know, if we could just get that fight done once before the end of the year, I think that's, I think that's not bad going. Um, 
Okay, Jerry, we could do this all day. I could, I could, I could talk to you all day. Um, well, listen, because I empty rooms now at my age. When I come in a room, people run the other way. I like to talk. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I kind of already do that, and I'm, and I'm, I'm half your age, so. <laughs> but no, I'll try to get over being so shy if we ever do this again. We, <laughs> this has been great. We'd love to do it again. We'd love to do it again. Uh, but we're taking up enough of your time. So, so thanks very much. Thanks very much. And just a reminder, the book. So out in paperback uh, next week, I think, or the week after. It's called May 11th. May 11th. May 11th. It's called Once Yeah, but you can pre-order. You can pre-order now. You can pre-order Amazon. Amazon. Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Barnes and Noble. But it's yeah. it's well worth getting. It's, uh, it's it's a great read. It's a great read. Um, so we will wind it up there. Thanks for listening, everybody. And hope you have a good week uh, it's pay-per-view week this week of course with um parker which is all against parker so we'll be back with, with some more podcasts so i'm not going to say exactly who with because that's always a dangerous game because you're never totally sure who it's who it's going to be but we've got some good ideas so we'll be back later in the week uh, in the meantime stay safe everybody right, not that maggie back in town I said Jenny Diver whoa Suki Tawdry look out to Miss Lottie Linger and old Lucy Brown yes that light falls on the right babe not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.